0: Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday message. Please head over to our website Bethelbrandon.ca to figure out how we can best serve you. So folks, in case you didn't know, it is Palm Sunday. Now, sometimes we as pastors uh, kind of get along in the in the the whole course of Sunday after Sunday, and stop. Sometimes don't realize that there are people who kind of are coming for the first time, and if if you are here for the first time or you're online and you're just kind of inquiring, or or maybe you kind of had uh, had come to the Easter egg hunt and kind of said, "What's this church about?" And you don't really know a whole lot about church, and you have heard about this thing which is called Palm Sunday. And you're kind of asking yourself, what is that all about? What what does it stand for? You know, there's lots of other Sundays, and and basically Palm Sunday is the Sunday that we have before Easter Sunday, and uh, some people call it not Palm Sunday; they will call it Passion Sunday, because it starts off with what is called the Passion Week, and it, it 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 ends on Easter Sunday, and it commemorates what has happened the last week. It basically is the inauguration of the most important week for Christians, the most important week in human history. So it is a big deal. And um, on that particular day, Palm Sunday, if you read the passage of scriptures, and it is in all four of the Gospels. Palm Sunday, the story about Palm Sunday, the occurrence that happened on, on Palm Sunday, all four of the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually talk about that. And that's very rare. rare, you know, so... It is something that they saw to be an important. It basically is the fulfillment of Jesus coming out and saying, yes, I am the Messiah. And and that's kind of a neat thing, isn't it? Think about it this way. There are four authors who gave a biography of Jesus' life. All of them came from a different perspective. All of them came from a different slant to try and show something different about Jesus to prove it to a different audience but all of them in these biographies only choose, for the most part, to talk about the last three years of Jesus' life. They almost just neglect to tell you anything about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. That's not it's kind of a strange biography, and every single one of the Gospel writers choose to do it this way. And so what they do is they focus on the, thra- the last three years of Jesus' life. And in that, of all the the Gospels, 35% of the Gospels, the Gospel story is focused on this last week. Isn't that something? And so the people that were closest to Jesus best felt for you to, if you could not understand him, you would not be able to understand him unless you understood the last week of his life. And it culminates in who Jesus is and what he stood for. Now, for some of you, you may not realize that there was a huge irony which was taking place. Jesus, what he does is he enters the city on a cult. A cult, which, which talks about the fact that it represented that there was a king. It was a, it was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And what was happening at that time, if you understood what was happening in Jewish times and what the, the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities did upon Passover... What they were probably doing at that time is that they were probably in the temple praying for Messiah to return or to come. Do you see the comedy in that? Oh, Messiah come, Messiah come, Messiah come. What's all that racket? Will you people shut up? We're praying for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah was coming. There's a huge irony in the whole process. But here's the issue. When we talk about Palm Sunday and everything that was going on, and I don't know what level of scholarly you are in terms of, uh, of the Gospels and reading it. The point was this. That what the people thought the Messiah was supposed to do, they thought he was going to come in force. They thought he was going to be a military figure that was going to overtake. And that's not what the true Messiah wanted to do. So there was a misunderstanding and so what happens is on Palm Sunday there is this tension between triumph and tragedy. You're continually swimming in this thought of good good praise praise to bad 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 hosanna hosanna crucify him crucify him. We're cheering for him. A couple verses later, he's weeping over Israel because they just didn't get it, they didn't fully understand. It goes from joy, all of a sudden it goes to judgment. They were straddling continually over delight and disaster. And that's the way our life is. Many times we live our lives straddling over the joy as well as the, the challenges that we have in life. It's kind of important. There's a waving of palm branches, and then there's a waving of a whip a couple of verses later. And Palm Sunday sets it off. So you have to ask the question, and many of us do. So, what does that have to do with my life? This is an occurrence that happened 2,000 years ago, and certainly it was important for Jesus. So, how does that translate? What does that mean for me today? What is the takeaway? perhaps, is what I'm asking. Well, I think the takeaway is important because when we understand what was important to Jesus, it should, if you passionately love Jesus, be important to you, should it not? Like, ask yourself this question. What were the core values of Jesus? Core values is kind of a popular term in the business world because core values are what you deem to be the most important part of the organization, and so when we think of Jesus, what were his core values? What was it that he viewed as important? What was it that moved Jesus? If I were to give you an assignment and say, hey, I'm going to give you three or four se- sentences, write out a paragraph as to what you think the most important thing was to Jesus, I'm wondering if we would have a similar response. Like, it's an important question to ask yourself. And and we ask it as a church. Here we are as a church, and every church has a different focus and has a different strength and has a different personality has has a different slant of ministry. And to know what the core values of Jesus were are extremely important because they should be important to us. They should be central to us. What did Jesus emphasize? What did he spend his time expounding? What was he passionate about? You know, what was the priority of his life? It's kind of an important question to ask because we are all passionate about certain things, aren't we? And so to consider what he did in the last week of his life should give us some type of indication as to what was important to Jesus at this time. So I'm going to read from Luke. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 19. 19. Verse twenty-eight. I could, like, I had a choice of four to read from. I'm reading from this one for a specific reason. You'll kind of f- figure it out a little bit later. Because he emphasizes some things that other people don't emphasize. So turn with me to Luke chapter nineteen, verse twenty-eight. If you have your Bible, if you have your Bible apps, please open them. I'm reading from the, the uh, New International Version. It says this. And after Jesus said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. Verse twenty-nine. And as he approached Beth Bethphage. And Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were taking, untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untoying the colt? They replied, "Jesus, the, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put, it, uh, put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heavens and in the glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What an incredible passage of Scripture. So what about, good, <laughs> I was going to say Good Friday, what about Palm Sunday? What is the get? What is the take? Well, if you take a close look, you will realize that there is a directive that God kind of gives us today. Things that he sees as important. The first thing is this. Um, What God wants from Palm Sunday, one directive is this, to do what Jesus says. It's kind of interesting that the whole story starts off with an instruction. You ever notice that? And the funny thing about Luke is, in this whole story, half of the whole story is based on them getting this cult, this unwritten cult. And you're kind of asking yourself, what is the big deal about this cult? What is there about this? There must be something that kind of makes it special in some way, especially when you consider the instructions. That what he said was kind of odd, don't you think? Now, if, if you compare uh, different commentaries, there are some commentaries said that Jesus kind of went ahead, ahead of time and free arranged things. But if you take a look at the context of this passage of Scripture, that's not the case. People didn't know about it. You could tell that they didn't really know exactly what was going on, but Jesus knew exactly what was going to take place. And I believe that was because God was probably working on their hearts at the same time, don't you think so? This is probably, this is what the probably case. And so what the thing was was that what Jesus was asking them was kind of um, uncomfortable. What, you want me to, what, do you, I don't really understand. Just go and, and take a colt and, and somebody else's colt. And, isn't that stealing? I kind of feel uncomfortable doing this. What you're asking me to do is kind of um, uncomfortable. Not only that, like it is unconventional. Can you just give me a letter, Lord, to kind Jesus to to give me to them so that they know exactly what is going on? So there's a better way of doing this, God. Not only that, it was unexplained. He didn't tell them why he was doing it. There was no instructions, he says, just do it. And that is kind of strange when you consider it. It is something which is very tough. Because I believe that God sometimes asks us to do things that are uncomfortable. And sometimes He asks us to do things that are unconventional. And sometimes He will tell us to do things that are unexplained. Have you ever found that? That there's sometimes God will tell us to do weird things. And sometimes we have the choice as to whether we do or whether we don't. And let me just tell you that this is not the only time in the Bible that Jesus told people to do things which are different. You take a look at John 9 God, I want to be healed. Well, all the other times that he healed people, he laid hands on them. They saw it was easy. With this guy, he spits in the ground, rubs the goop in his eyes, and tells them to go wash it. What's with that? Does that not seem weird to you? How about a a, a few chapters later when when they have to pay the taxes and Jesus said, you pay the taxes. I'll tell you what, go fishing, catch the fish, look in the fish's mouth, that's where your taxes will be. I would like to have things a little bit more explained. Well, why God? Well, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Just do it. I think Nike had it, didn't they? Just do it. It's not just in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament. What about in Genesis? Poor Noah sitting there, not knowing what's going on. God says, Listen, I want you to build an ark. Great. What's an ark? Why are you going to do this? What's going on, God? Why don't you kind of explain things to me? Could you imagine in Judges where God all of a sudden visits this this guy named Gideon? And Gideon gets an army together. And as he's going through the whole processes, God taps him on the shoulder and says, there are too many people in this army. Make it smaller. Well, how do I do that? Well, okay, I'll show you a way. Okay, there you go, God. I'll tell you what, Gideon. Make it smaller still. What? Now, God, I know that you're God, but do you not kind of understand the, kind of the, the rules of engagement when it comes to a war? Just You just do as I say. I've got the thing planned. And obedience is this. Understanding that God, the creator of the universe, who is everywhere all-knowing, all of those things, knows exactly what he is doing. And that's tough for us sometimes, don't you think? And it's important to understand that sometimes the most important things that take place is when we just kind of go and do it. Understanding that God is doing something with someone else at the same time. Because with God, the small things matter, don't they? There's a story I came across. I think that I I think I, I gave this story uh, a number of years ago. And for those of you who have memorized all of my sermons, I apologize that I'm saying this one over again. <laughs> but there's a story of an individual who was who was kind of learning to be better as a as a boss. And uh, what happens is he's kind of told that you know what you need to do is you need to encourage those people. If you are a leader in a business, then those people who are kind of below you need encouragement. And so he kind, of, he kind of took this to heart, went back to work. And he said, you know what? I have not seen these people because we work in the computer world. There are certain people that I have not seen for six months. So what he did is he told himself, I'm going to visit them this week, all of them. I think that there were six or seven He says, I am going to say something that I really appreciate about these particular individuals. So we went to this one individual, and he kind of talked to him, and he encouraged him. He went into his cubicle and told him how much he appreciated him and the things that he enjoyed about him um, so much. And so this this guy kind of responded a little bit, and nothing was really sensed until a little while later. I'll read read his words, okay? Okay. Uh, After the visit from Steve, one of the the software engineers, Lenny, was presented him with an Xbox game console. Steve was taken aback because he knew that Lenny had taken pay cuts over the last year. But he was more surprised to learn that the money had come from the sale of a 9mm pistol, a pistol Lenny had brought months earlier with the intention of killing himself. Lenny told him of his mother's death the previous year and the ensuing loneliness and desperation. And Lenny says this, I started a routine every night after work, eating a bowl of ramen noodles, listening to Nirvana and getting the gun out. It took about a month to get the courage to put the bullets in the gun. It took another couple months to get used to the feeling of the barrel of the gun on the top of my teeth. For the next few weeks, I was putting putting pressure ever so closely onto the trigger, and I was getting ever so close, see so close. Last week, you freaked me out when you came to my cubicle. You put your arm around you. You told me that you appreciated me because I, in turn, I I turned in all my projects early, and and that helps you sleep at night. And then you also said that you have a great sense of humor over the email and that you were glad that I came into your life. That night I went home, ate the ramen noodles, listened to Nevada, and when I took the gun out, it scared me silly for the first time. All I could think about was what you said, that you were glad that I came into your life. The next day I went back to the pawn shop, sold the gun. I remembered that you said that you wanted an Xbox more than anything, but with a new baby at home, you couldn't afford it. So for my life, you get this game. Thanks, boss. Don't tell me that the small things don't matter. The small things do matter. And there will be times in our lives, if you are passionately following Jesus, that God will ask you to do things and you will not know why. And what happens many times is we say no because we don't understand it. And obedience is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we can be obedient in some things. Well, God, I'm, I'm sure I will tithe. I, I, will, I will give a tenth of my income. And, and yeah, God, I will, I will certainly help out at the church. Obey my, uh, uh, forgive my brother. Well, hold on a second here, God. Can we talk about this? This seems totally unreasonable when you stop and consider all the things that he did for me. If you are here and you have a vanilla Christianity, that you think that there's nothing of action and completeness which is happening. I'll say this. I will challenge you with this. The chances are there have been times when you have said no to things that you haven't understood from God. Because when you become totally obedient, it's amazing what God will do. I believe that it was um, Samuel that said obedience Obedience is greater than sacrifice. Isn't that true? The next thing is this. Not only is it to do what Jesus says, the other thing is this, is to desire Christ's heart. That Jesus had a passion, and this comes out in the Palm Sunday story, that he is passionate about what is taking place, and and you read read from the, the verses that he begins to weep over a number of things. Passion is one of those Overused word, particularly when it is used in the, the, the physical realm then when you talk about passion that's kind of what uh, seems to be the, the default that we go to. But passion is a whole lot more than that. Passion is what makes you excited about life. What is it that you are passionate about? What are the, the, the things that, that are that are in your life that will help in that particular form uh, which is which is a, a part of it now, we're all passionate about different things did you find that something sometimes it could be work sometimes it could be a hobby sometimes it could be some of the strangest things i know that there are some people who are passionate <laughs> i'll say this about someone that i know that you might know who are passionate about hot wheels they have hot wheels all over the place I know my son enjoys music so much that he started to buy those, uh, the vinyl albums. Remember those of you who had an, a turntable and you put it on when you put the arm on it? Well, he's got one of those. It's expensive now. But he's got hundreds of albums. He's passionate about that and the music that he enjoys. I know of an individual who was a pastor who traveled quite a, a bit, collected barf bags. Can you believe that? Now, I'm sure that they were unused, folks. But he has a whole collection of them. It is amazing what we are, are um, passionate about. But when Jesus begins to talk, you can see his passion. He's passionate about individuals. He's passionate about people. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved every kind of people. Didn't matter the race. It didn't matter the gender. It didn't matter the job. It didn't matter the title. It didn't matter the affiliation. It didn't matter the condition. He loved people. He was seen dealing with a rich young ruler. He was seen dealing with widows and prostitutes and tax collectors, a Samaritan woman, fishermen. He particularly seemed to like children and youth. He worked with people who were centurions, religious leaders, people who people forgot about, people who had incurable diseases. Jesus was passionate about people. He loved people. Jesus loves me. This I know. for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. How I know that? The Bible? The Bible tells me so. He had a passion for people. The question I ask myself is, do I? Am I caught? With prejudices, am I caught with, with uh, experiences that people had before, me and caused me to look at them differently? Not only that, he was he was passionate about Israel. It was the people that govern God had sovereignly used to bless the world, and, and as he's, he's talking, he is lamenting over the fact that they weren't able to get it, that, that God had been working with this nation for so long, and when the, when the opportunity was for them to see him, that he couldn't. And there's something about Israel that God calls us to pray over God's chosen people, to protect them, to give them peace, that God most of all would reveal him as the Messiah. God opened their eyes. The last one is this. The other one is this. He had a passion for, sorry, he had a passion for injured. He had a passion for impaired people. He had a passion for the lost. He believed that there was something about lost people, that it broke his heart. If you look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless." Not willing that any should perish, it says in Second Peter chapter two, but that all should come to repentance. And it leads me to ask the question: Does my heart break for lost people? Have I gotten myself to a state where I say, "Well, I'm saved, and my family saved, and I sure hope that someone else gets saved." But if God wanted them to get saved, then God would do something about it. But I don't think that that's what the intention was. I think that hurting people, impaired people, lost people, matter to God. And the prayer is this, God, give me a heart for lost people, or give me a heart again for lost people. The person I sit beside at work, the person who lives across me, the person that I curl with, or the person I play golf with, but the person that is just somehow in my life for some reason, and I couldn't even tell you why, that each one of you has a circle of people that I will never, ever, ever, ever reach, that God calls all of us to be missionaries in the field that we are in. There's a church that I visited one time in, in southern Ontario, and it had, as you came into the driveway, you had the, the title and the, the church, very nice sign, as you left on the other side of the sign, it said this: "You are now entering the mission field." That there is something about it that God let my heart break for the things that break your heart. A time to desire. A time to desire the Christ of the highest God. The last one is this: is a time to um, declare that Jesus. Um, Wanted to declare who he is. That was kind of what what Palm Sunday was all about. Jesus was saying, you were asking me if I'm the Messiah. Here it is. I am the Messiah. And so what happens is they begin to say this word, Hosanna. Hosanna. You ever wonder where the word Hosanna had come from? There's one particular verse that it comes from in in the book of, of Psalms. I can't remember exactly where it is. Maybe I have it in my notes here as I take a look. Yes, yeah, Psalms 118.25. It says, God, it basically means literally, save peace. Save me, please. Hosia na. Hosia na. And basically, it is like this. And someone had used this illustration. It was a word that was used. If you were on the diving board at the swimming pool and you didn't know how to swim. Now, if you're not knowing how to swim, don't stand on the diving board. I'll just say that. But you're on the diving board, you don't know how to swim, and somebody pushes you in the pool. You say, if you can, save me, na. But in this particular passage of Scripture, it says right after nah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so what happens was almost before you're in the water, salvation has come. That's basically the way that the passage of Scripture was noted, and so what happened was eventually, Hosianah, save me, help, 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 became this. God, thank you for saving me. It's almost like you are in the water and the in the uh, lifeguard has already on the way to save you, and so you're not saying, save me. You're saying, thank God, I am saved. So the word kind of transferred; it evolved into the fact of it was becoming "Hosanna, salvation is here! Hooray for salvation! In the name of, De- in the, through the Son of David, is our salvation." This is literally what they are saying. The Son of David is here. We rejoice in the fact that we have been saved. And this is kind of interesting because it was talking about the fact that there is salvation, and no one else. It's kind of like what Acts says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Sorry, Acts 4.31, I think where it is. That the fact that you think, okay, there's a number of different ways to get to heaven, the Bible itself does not say that that's true. It says there is salvation alone in one person. It's through Jesus Pluralism doesn't work. I have my personal truth. I'm just going to believe my personal truth. But your personal truth, if it's not truth, is a lie. It won't get you to the place. Just because you personally believe it doesn't mean that it is actually truth. Truth is an absolute thing. And, and, and if you, you believe in a hybrid truth, well, I believe that, but I also kind of believe what the Buddhists think. And I kind of like to take something from the Muslims, and I would like to take something from here. Well, that doesn't become Christianity. So they talk about the fact that there was the proclamation that he is the Savior. And we need to declare that. We need to declare that through our our worship. Through the times we stand up. And we did that this morning. And the place arose with praise because of the fact that we are declaring the salvation of God. But not only that. That God somehow has us incorporated into the salvation process. He says, go and tell people. So not only is it through our worship, it is through our witness and maybe even most of all, it is through our walk. The everyday things that we do. It's interesting how that all happens. I remember a time I had planted a church and we were struggling along and uh, um, got a phone call from a guy whose name was Bob. Hey Bob, how you doing? Well, I want to know about your church. Great, Bob, what can I tell you? Well, I was on an airplane and my life was a wreck and this guy leads me to Jesus and he tells me about you. Really? Who is this guy? Well, he he is the district superintendent of your denomination. So what happened was the person who was the pastor of the pastors in Western Ontario District at that time led this person to the Lord. And and. And said, listen, he told me I need to go to church. And, and I, I was looking around. There's two churches. There's a the big one and there's yours. And so, so um, I'm going to go to yours. Great. Come on out. And he did. And he grew. And things kind of went there. And we did all kinds of things to kind of help him along. And then one Sunday, he said, listen, thanks for everything. But my wife likes this church better. And so we're going to start going to that church. And I said, That's great. And God was just teaching me. It's the kingdom of God. What we are called to do is we are called to declare him through our worship, through our witness, and through our walk that Jesus loves you so much that he died on a cross for you. And then I let God do the process because discipleship is not a one-person issue. You might be the link in the middle of the chain. You might not be the link at the end of the chain that sees that person come to know Jesus. But he tells us to be faithful in that link. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're saying to your neighbor, whatever you're saying to your friend, whatever the situation is, so we declare him through all those things with the shout of shouts that we have, Hosanna, To everyone who comes in our everyday walk. So what would you say the core values of Jesus are? I think that's an important thing for us to ask ourselves this day, isn't it? We're going to take communion. So if you have your communion um, things there, we just kind of get ourselves prepared for that. I was kind of taking a look at Easter. and, And next... Next week, I want to talk about restoring the joy of Easter. And the reason I want to do that, because it seems to me like a lot of us have kind of lost out on that joy. I think that God is calling us to take ownership of joy back. I honestly do. But as I was doing some studying, this is what I found out. I looked, I noticed, anyways. Have you ever noticed in the Easter story, or at least around Palm Sunday, there are two basins used? You know, for those of you who don't know what a basin is, it's just kind of like that, uh, that little tub or whatever that you carry that you put water in for washing things, right? There's a basin mentioned twice in the Passion Week or coming upon it. The first one is when Jesus comes and they're arguing about who the greatest is. <laughs> Jesus comes and he puts this basin down. The creator of the universe does this takes the basin, takes the water out and he washes their feet. You want to be the greatest? This is what you got to do. The second time we hear about a basin is when Pilate is fighting with the Jewish people. And he doesn't want to but what he does is this. He puts his hand in the basin, washes it off. And says, it's not my responsibility. I had nothing to do with it. And what's so special about that is that I think many times our life and our joy exists in between those two. That we choose to take the role of servanthood and say, okay, I'm just gonna do whatever God wants me to do. Or we take a look at whatever situation we're in, and we just say, Responsibility. And if I could encourage you to do anything, it will be this Easter to take up the one basin. Because I think that's where joy exists. I think that we have lost joy because somehow along the way, we are picking up the wrong basin. Does that make sense to you? Does that resonate? So go am and just pray. that you will help us to be more like you. Lord, that that we will do what you are asking us to do even in those times where we just can't figure it out. And that God, you will put in us a passion of the things that you are passionate about. About people, about Israel, about lost people. And that God, you will help us to declare because you have put us in a mission field that nobody else has access to. So we pick up the basin of service. And when we pick up the basin of service, we ultimately pick up the basin of joy. And Lord, I just pray that you will restore joy in our hearts. No matter what we've gone through, no matter what we're going through, Father, we can have that joy. And I pray, Father, that you will bless each and every individual here, each and every family that is here, each and every person who is listening online. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to move right now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25 goes on and says this. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So God, during this time, I pray that you will bless this, this time of communion. The Lord, you will convict us to be more like you. And so Lord, we share together in the body of Christ for the price that you paid on the cross for our sins. And, and as we're so close to Easter, it just seems to have that extra weight upon it. I pray over each and every individual. God, I pray, Father, for each person who this message was for. I pray, God, that we will leave this place alive in Jesus' name, because you got something for us to do for your kingdom. So let's take the emblem which is on the top part of the cellophane, let's participate together in the broken body. Praise you, Father. Thank you for dying on the cross, oh God. And in the same way, we celebrate the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for our sins, for our eternal Redemption, let's participate together. Father, we worship you. We pray for the presence, the work of the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and our lives. We pray, Father, for a freshness that will come through you and only you, O oh God. Put in us a passion, Father, to serve you, we ask. Allow the work of the Holy Spirit, Father, to move through us, O God. Let us leave this place with the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that upon each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.